Hi there. Thank you for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast, a show where a couple of old friends get together and watch an episode of the Generation 1 Transformers cartoon in story order and then get together to talk about what they saw. We're lifelong fans of the show, so we talk about it from the perspective of how we encountered it as children and how we felt about it growing up with it as teenagers and young adults. And here we are as not quite so young adults to reflect on it, how we feel about it now, too. My name is Jersey Drozd. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist, and the other host is named... Hoover. Mm. We're still on that. We're still on just Hoover. Well, I am definitely not micro Hoover. <laughs> you had that one saved up, didn't you? Maybe. <laughs> okay. So, as as if you're new to the show, you know I I just desc- described the premise, and now you're getting a flavor of like what what the dynamic is here is that I stand over on the side of the heroic Autobots, and Hooper tends to stand over on the side of the evil Decepticons, the misunderstood Decepticons. <laughs> those those rugged individualists. No, wait, that's the Autobots. Uh, <laughs> the Decepticons are the conformists. They all fall in a line with Megatron. Except for Starscream, which is why he's such a memorable character. Anyway, what's our episode this week? Microbots by David Wise. Hmm. That name rings a bell. Yes, he wrote Attack of the Autobots and Day of the Machines. Both of them. And I was not a huge fan, I have to say. But let's see what happens. (laughs) Well, actually... Yeah, Day of the Machines. You had a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of critiques of that. I, I can't remember where you fell on Attack of the Autobots, but we'll see how you feel about this one. Either way, is it, is it going to be like a two for three, or is it <laughs> going to be like a a one for three? Where is this episode? If people want to watch it ahead of time and then come back and listen to our commentary on it, on Tubi, it is in the season two row episode eleven. And if you haven't watched it. Or if you haven't watched it recently, I'm going to put ahead of the IMDb reading. I'm going to give you the meta reading on this episode. Because this one, when I wrote this on paper, I was like, this is bananas. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so brace yourself for seeing fully developed and crystallized Optimus Dad. he's, he's, He's super Autobot Dad in this one. But then... It's also the story of like the Campbellian mythological belly of the beast where mm-hmm. people like heroes go into the belly of the monster and come out different. Or maybe shoulder of the beast would be more appropriate. <laughs> shoulder, neck and head of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I got a lot of observations about this, that whole bit. But then I feel like if this was streaming on Disney Plus, there would be a little disclaimer in the upper right hand corner that says portrayals of alcohol consumption (laughs) (laughs) what yes brace yourselves everybody let's dive in let's do this one all right from the internet movie database megatron recovers the heart of cybertron from an ancient spaceship and uses its power on the autobots perceptor suggests using his shrink ray to enter megatron's body and steal the heart hmm Hmm. weird already yeah how does this one begin (laughs) We open on a jungle where we soon hear an unfamiliar voice speak some words in Spanish. 
We pull back to see a man in a hole in the ground, and as he tells his partner Joan that he's found something, we start to deduce that this is some sort of archaeological dig. Also, here are apparently some locals helping them with the dig, wearing ponchos or some kind of foreign garb, while the two scientists wear tan outfits. The male scientist, voiced by Jack Angel, has found a piece of pottery, and he tells the aforementioned Joan that she owes him ten bucks. He looks over at her, and we see she has light blue hair like she was just visiting from the gem cartoon. Yeah, I noticed that too. I, I, I even took a screen grab of it because I'm just like... And I, I won't I won't belabor this point, Hoover, but part of the poetry of these cartoons is that kind of flexibility of reality where you can have somebody with blue hair who's an archaeologist. And remember, this is 1985. Multicolored hair was not as prevalent a thing mm-hmm. as it is today, right? Not at all. Like if somebody showed up at my school, especially where I grew up, where there was like four kids in my class and I had 700 siblings, if somebody showed up with blue hair, it'd be like, what kind of freak from the future just showed up, you know? <laughs> So I love this idea of like, yep, it's blue. Well, and, and if you think about it, comic books, like dark hair was always colored blue in mm-hmm. comic books, right? Like Superman's hair is blue with black, you know, shading on it. I love that sort of surrealistic visual poetry of these cartoons. So there, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> well, Joan remarks that it's probably just something a tourist left behind, but he insists that it's at least 1,300 years old. So Joan, who's voiced by Morgan Lofting, a.k.a. the Baroness and cover girl from G.I. Joe, starts digging more and her shovel hits something hard. As she unearths more of it, her partner comes over to get a look. It appears to be metal. So an unknown amount of time passes, and then we see that they've unearthed the back end of what appears to be a purple spacecraft. And the guy thinks that's just not possible, but Joan points out that the rock around it indicates that it could be millions of years old. Hmm, a spaceship that's millions of years old and purple. Yeah, I mean, think about the name of the show, everybody. This show that you're listening to now, not the show we're talking about. I love when Jack Angel's character, his archaeologist, is like, uh, that's not possible. He says, he actually says, the Mayans didn't have spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> or did they? <laughs> I guess I guess that's maybe the, that's the line they're playing there. It's like there's some people who like are inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. <laughs> they think that they actually did. They hadn't seen. They didn't know that Indiana Jones four was coming yet. Oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> well, we cut to the Decepticon base where Soundwave stands in front of a monitor, which shows that aforementioned spacecraft. He calls for Megatron, who comes over to watch the news footage, which speculates that the ship could be four million years old. Hmm, four million years. Hmm, sounds familiar. Mm. Did anything important happen four million years ago? Involving spaceships crashing on Earth? Well, Mm. Megatron knows exactly what this is. It's a Decepticon ship, and you know what is inside of it. I must have it. And of course, Megatron's referring to his collection of photographs of Starscream in embarrassing situations. Here's Starscream (laughs) slipping on a beryllium banana peel. Here's Skywarp putting Starscream's hand in a bucket of water when he fell asleep early at the slumber party. Here's Starscream getting struck by lightning. I like how your first two were just like pratfalls and like silliness, you know, but the last one is he's getting killed. (laughs) Well, he survives it. People say they're getting struck by lightning all the time, although they're not usually metal. Uh, okay. 
Well, we cut to the Autobot base, and our new friend Perceptor is in microscope mode. He's looking at a microchip and talking out loud to it. Turns out it's a microchip from Ironhide, which has a blocked linkage needing repaired. Ironhide is lying on an examination table as Braun stands nearby. Quit talking to that circuit and fix it. I can't remember a thing without it. Yeah, Perceptor, there's real work to be done around here. This is real work, Braun. Real work is crushing Decepticons, not fussing with chips. If I didn't fuss with chips, you couldn't crush Decepticons. And with that, he sets the microchip on a device, pushes a button, and the chip grows to maybe ten times its original size. Then he begins repairing the broken linkage in it. Braun says bah to all Perceptor's comments, and then in walks Bumblebee, who tells Braun to lay off. Perceptor's as important as any of us. So where is he when we're fighting? It takes more than muscle to fight. Yeah, it takes courage. Or maybe that word's not in your fancy vocabulary. Leave him alone, Braun, or you're gonna tangle with me. Oh, I'm shaking in my proton boots. Y yes, everybody knows what happened when I was watching this part. Come on. <laughs> you're 30-odd episodes in. If you don't know by now, yes, I got very happy because Bumblebee is being very cute and brave all the time. We have established that Braun is not to be trifled with. Braun walks through walls. Braun Literally. throws Seekers. Yes, he, he smashes through walls. He doesn't walk through walls like because he's like like Kitty Pride. He, he wa walks through walls because they're not strong enough to stop him. <laughs> he walks into piles of Seekers and throws them around like ragdolls, right? Bumblebee, not so strong, said, hey, lay off, back off. Oh, Bumblebee, you're so great. But <laughs> this, this tees up what is an interesting thing for young people to see is that, and we talked about this a bunch of times and especially where I was growing up, but I think this was like sort of the experience of most sensitive, nerdy or non-mainstreamy kids in the eighties is that physical strength, physical prowess being like, like how many movies were about like sports heroes, like Teen Wolf was all about like, I become a werewolf. What am I going to do with it? I'm, now I'm a basketball hero. And <laughs> the, you know, the, the popular girl wants to date me now. Right? Like that story was all over the place. Physical prowess was was largely celebrated, and that messaging was very clear in media, and it was clear in our daily lives as children, right? High school football heroes and all that stuff, right? So to have a story where a character like Perceptor shows up, it's like, this is real work. I'm doing real work. This Just because it's not big and showy, just because it's behind the scenes and it's like it's like not mom and dad don't necessarily glamorize it or maybe like, you know, the gym coach doesn't glamorize it doesn't mean that it's not important. You know, he's 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 advocating for the AV club here. <laughs> and then I, I want to point out a flaw in Braun's worldview because he's like, oh, you know, maybe maybe you don't have courage or whatever. And Bumblebee's like, yeah, here's courage. And Braun's like, oh, I'm shaking my proton boots. Ah, uh -uh, Braun, you don't get to have it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pat Bumblebee on the shoulder and say, yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. See, Perceptor, he's very brave. But I want to hang on to this one line. There's a one little piece, there's a phrasing in here that when I heard it again, I was like, I did not notice that when I was a child. And it promises something in this episode that I hope gets delivered on, but I suspect it won't be, is that Braun used the words fancy vocabulary. Now, why is that interesting? Because it points to the fact that he's making fun of Perceptor for you know, having big words, which he hasn't used a whole lot yet. Like, he, he, he's not, like, you know, saying <laughs> things like uh, xanthipic consort and auxurious chrome visage twit or anything like that. I'm quoting Corporate Commander from the G.I. Joe comic, everybody. But 
but he's but it's pointing to the fact that Braun, why do we act angry? A lot of times we act angry because we're afraid. What might Braun be afraid of? Well, he, he can beat up anybody, but he doesn't feel smart, and he feels threatened by the fact that Perceptor is smart, and that's why he's giving him a hard time. That's what that points to. And I'm like, oh, is Braun going to learn to respect Perceptor because Perceptor shows kindness and compassion to Braun's failings? Oh, that'd be really cool. <laughs> that'd be really cool. But we'll see. Anyway, everybody hang on to that thought. Okay, now we'll keep going. <laughs> so just then, Prime walks in and tells everyone that's enough. He tells Braun and Bumblebee that they're rolling out. Perceptor and Ironhide will join them once repairs are finished. But Perceptor says he can't go because there's too much to do here. Braun scoffs. Prime allows Perceptor to stay behind as he and a handful of Autobots, Ratchet, Bumblebee, and Braun all head out. Are you sure that's all who left? <laughs> well, it looks like that's all who left. <laughs> okay, okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> Because I, 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 I'm beginning to sense, my, my spider sense is tingling that there's going to be a scene where Hoover gets annoyed because a bunch of people just show up out of nowhere like, what? We were here the whole time. <laughs> anyway. On the way, Ratchet asks what's up, and Prime says that something's been discovered in South America, something Megatron wants. And what Megatron wants always needs to be kept from him by definition. So I guess these four are driving to South America, unless they're yes. rendezvousing with Skyfire so he can take them the whole way <laughs> except for the last five miles of the journey, as he often does. Don't say it unless you mean it, because <laughs> I, 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 I miss him. I miss him on this show. We need that cheerful giant in here also to tell Braun to stop being a jerk. <laughs> Well, we cut to Megatron and his bunch already in South America as he barks at them. Faster, faster! Rumble says the scenery is nice and Scavenger retorts. Yeah, let's waste it. I hate nice things. <laughs> I do love that line. That's a great line. <laughs> and, I mean, you have to love this scene because this is the Decepticon mm -hmm. sort of like talking shop while they're doing their job, right? <laughs> We see Rumble and Scavenger then watch as Starscream takes aim at some vines hanging from a tree, and he misses them completely. Rumble laughs and tells him, nice shot, and then Starscream whips around, pointing his null ray in Rumble's face as he begins to threaten him, but Rumble cuts him off. Hey, hold that pose! I want to remember you that way! And then we see there is a gigantic snake dropping down from the tree onto Starscream. And by gigantic, I mean it could easily swallow Starscream's head. The snake yeah. lands on him and begins wrapping itself around his shoulders. Ah, help! Get this thing off me! Oh, oh, I think it looks stunning on you! <laughs> and Rumble and the Constructicons all laugh at Starscream struggling with his new reptile friend. <laughs> Yeah, okay, this is the moment where I was like, all right, Hoover, I knew I would need to put the brakes on the synopsis and say, how many hearts came out of Hoover's head as we pan across the Constructicons? Mixmaster and Scavenger, no, no great heroes of the Decepticon army, <laughs> laughing at Starscream as he's struggling with a giant snake on him, and then it ends on Rumble's face as he's laughing right at Starscream. This must have been like, oh, where have you been all my life? 
Transformers scene for Hoover. Mm-hmm. This this is the kind of scene that you just need 30 seconds of in an episode. You need to show yeah. that the Decepticons are real beings with personality. They are yeah. not just war machines there to shoot. And yeah. this scene is a quick and easy way to do that, especially if you manage to do that by putting Starscream in peril. It's even better. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay, so this reminds me of a Simpsons joke when, and I think it's the, the Sideshow Bob episode when we meet his brother. And like Sideshow Bob, or rather, Sideshow Bob's brother is auditioning for the job to be Krusty's new sidekick. And then they throw the pie at the guy's face and it hits and he smiles. And Krusty's like, no, no, no. You have to have dignity. And he throws a pie at Sideshow Bob. And Sideshow Bob just says, oh. And then he's like, see? Now that's funny. <laughs> so it's like, take the guy who looks in the mirror and says like, yes, oh my. <laughs> Only a god could put this together today. And then have him slip in the mud. And then, boom, it's automatically funny. Now, another thing that I love is that this is, once again, Rumble proving that he's really witty. He doesn't give a hoot about what anybody thinks about him in the organization, except for Megatron. Maybe Soundwave, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, he's ready to give anybody the business. Hold that pose. I want to remember you that way. <laughs> <laughs> While Starsky's pointing a gun at him. <laughs> and all this from he, the littlest Decepticon. Yeah, and and you're right. It's this it's this whole thing. This points to another thing that I I find like is sort of a default position of some writers, where it's like villains always must be seething. They must be just like coursing with rage. Everything about them must be quiet and intense. <laughs> and oh, I'm so dangerous all the time. I'm like a coiled tiger all the time. <laughs> well, yes, that's a kind of villain. You have villains like Rumble too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who are just like funny and like there's no way I would want to share a meal with Rumble. He is uh, he's a monster. He's a, a murdering little creep, but he's funny in the context <laughs> in, like this, right? And and it, yeah, you're like you said, like part of what makes a really good Transformers episode work is when you show the Decepticons just being people amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. This isn't about battle. This is about them just doing the plan, taking a break to reflect on the relationships. And then moving on, and it's very short, but it's so satisfying. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking for too much. I didn't say, you know, give me 15 minutes of it. I said, give me 30 seconds of it. That's all yeah. we need. <laughs> I really encourage everybody to watch that pan as the constructed kinds of Rumbler laughing at Starscream because <laughs> if you've ever been on the butt end of a bunch of friends giving you the business, they captured it very, very well. Speaking of tapes, then we cut to Ravage, who's having some problems with the local fauna as well. A cheetah gets a little too curious about Ravage and leaps out of a bush at him. The pair get into a tussle, but one of these players has missiles. (laughs) So Ravage fires a missile at the tree that the cheetah has climbed, and the cheetah leaps at Ravage, who slaps him with a paw and sends him on his way. Yeah, this is kind of like akin to that shot of Laserbeak looking over his shoulder and <laughs> zapping that pterodactyl on Dinobot Island. But Ravage has a little bit more trouble than Laserbeak. So again, going back to reminding everybody that Laserbeak's the MVP of the tapes. <laughs> but Ravage is no slouch either because he, after getting like, and it's a really well animated wrestling match between these two cats. But yeah, the once once the cheetah makes its final leap at him, then Ravage just does this like, get out of here. <laughs> it's in the face and <laughs> it runs away. <laughs> Well, then we cut back to Starscream, who is finally managing to get the snake off of him, and he's had it with the jungle and wants to get back in the air. But Megatron shouts no and says they have to remain on the ground to avoid satellite detection. And everyone continues decimating the land around them. 
So we cut to Prime and his bunch, and surprise, they're here, made it from the west coast of the USA to the undisclosed part of the South American jungle in record time. Mm. But the jungle's getting too thick to drive through, so they have to transform. Why don't we just blast our way through all these weeds? That's not our style, Bron. Oh, really? <laughs> Seemed to be your style 16 episodes ago when you atomized tree after tree after tree in Africa. Hey, wait a minute. Okay, changing gears with its tree annihilation happened in 1985. In the same year as the entire country of Ethiopia was starving and all America's pop stars had to record a benefit song to fund famine relief. Hmm. I think the Autobots are personally responsible for the African famine of the 80s. Oh, well, or they were maybe like obliquely referring to it. I have to like, I love the fact that we get this moment when Optimus is like, yeah, we don't do that. And he should have said anymore. You're right. <laughs> he does have some history. But I love that like. I instantly conjured in my mind is that that story we told between the panels in a past episode where Spike was like, wait a minute, you did what? And I was like, well, we shot the trees so they get them out of the way. He's like, they're living. He's like, what? <laughs> and so now he knows. He knows not to do it. So uh, it, it, it points to a continuity that I don't think was intended. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it leaves space for my beloved fanon of Spike and Chip Chase <laughs> making the Autobots always choose a little bit better episode after episode. <laughs> so speaking of tree annihilation, Prime sees that the jungle already has a path lasered through it. So they transform back to vehicles to drive through the area, but Prime warns them to be careful. We cut back to the Decepticons as Scavenger is sort of sniffing the ground in excavator mode, driving forward as Megatron walks beside him. Scavenger's picking up traces of Cybertroid alloy and declares that the star drive is nearby. And as he's doing this, he's you, if you listen, he's literally doing... <laughs> you know, you hear him sniffing like a bloodhound. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of cute. And I like that Megatron is like walking next to him. Like, what do you smell? <laughs> okay, so now we're getting more info about what Megatron's after. This star drive must be short for a Starscream hard drive, and all those embarrassing <laughs> photos are in digital format on a hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. These are technological alien robots, after all. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you, you, Aniston for true, caught me off guard with that one. <laughs> <laughs> the best part is that I conceptualized what it was before I remembered it was called the Star Drive. <laughs> and it just fit perfectly. Oh, that's good. So we see that the Decepticons are nearing the big purple ship. But the two architects are still here with their three local helpers. They're thinking that they should try to enter the ship, but suddenly a voice says, Don't touch that! And the scientists turn to see Megatron and the Decepticons standing on a cliff above them. Megatron instructs his troops to introduce themselves, and they all open fire on the flesh creatures who scatter to two jeeps, which they use to get the heck out of here, giving Megatron complete access to the ship. Megatron instructs them to cut it open... And Hook shoots a hole in the ship. Doesn't seem very precise. (laughs) But immediately behind the atomized panel is what Megatron's come for. A glowing green pointy sticker burr looking object wired into the circuitry of the ship. 
Asking for Hook's cyber forceps, Megatron removes the device, calling it the Heart of Cybertron. He explains that it powered their ship all the way from Cybertron to Earth. And while it's not explicitly stated for the viewer and spelled out, this is the ship that the Decepticons left Cybertron in. If you remember, they attached their ship to the Autobot ship via a tractor beam, then they all boarded the Autobot ship to attack them. And the Decepticon ship just sort of dislodged as they entered Earth's atmosphere, and apparently it crashed in South America while the Ark crashed in the U.S. Well, later Transformers stories mm-hmm. bring some debate to where the ship actually crashed, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> the Nemesis! <laughs> The heart of Cybertron, yeah, the sticky burr. I think that's a good description, like a very geometric sticky burr. Yeah. It looks kind of like Superman's escape ship in the 1979 Superman movie, like when he's a baby leaving Krypton. Mm. It literally looks like a little crystal star, and it's like roughly the size of like a bouncy ball but to Megatron's hand, <laughs> right? Like if Megatron had a bouncy ball, uh, that's what it would be the size. So, yeah. Cool. So what happens next? Well, this sort of confused me because at first they're calling it the Star Drive, and then they mm-hmm. call it the Heart of Cybertron. So are we supposed to believe that the Star Drive was the entire ship? Oh. Oh, yeah. If so, that's interesting because I don't think they picked up on that when they put the ship in Beast War. Spoiler alert. Oh, you spoiled it. Thank you for that. Yeah, when we find out the ship was called the Nemesis. Mm-hmm. The Nemesis. Yeah, yeah. I, I interpreted it as he's talking about, like, the engine of the ship. Like, the, mm, the, the part of the okay. ship with the boosters. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. But they don't really make it clear in the in the dialogue whatsoever. <laughs> they're just talking about the Star Drive, and then they're talking about the Heart of Cybertron. It's like, I, I just, I like the idea of Megatron having a ship called the Star Drive. Hey, everybody, let's go for a ride in the Star Drive. <laughs> Come on, that's, that's not a very menacing name, Megatron. Well... My dad liked it. I'm very busy. I've got plans to come up with. I can't be naming ships for half an hour. We drive through the stars in it. Therefore, it's the star drive. You got a problem with that shockwave? No, no. Not, not the least. Drive away to the stars. So Hook asks what Megatron will do with the heart of Cybertron now. And sadly, I guess it's not a hard drive of embarrassing photos of Starscream. But with that, Megatron lies down on the ground and tells Hook to implant the heart of Cybertron inside him. It's a cool shot here as he lays down and the panel opens up on his chest and we see he's got like a a, a spot ready and waiting for it. Which, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, they they only have 21 minutes. They can only do so much. But like, it makes me wonder if like it transformed, right? Like, I Mm -hmm. I wonder if their insides can transform a little bit when necessary to accommodate new things. It sure looks like kind of spot where you'd put a matrix. (laughs) Well, that takes about three seconds and right away Megatron can feel its power flowing through him. And he says as much, only to hear a retort from Optimus Prime that he'll need every bit of power as Optimus gives the order to attack. But Megatron's a step ahead as always and channels the power of the heart of Cybertron through his hands as he fires a blast directly at Prime's chest. The blast hits him square on and he falls to the valley below. Megatron yells for the Autobots to follow orders and attack as he sends another blast towards the other Autobots just in time for our first commercial break. 
this is a great commercial break ending moment of him standing there with his legs apart and holding mm-hmm. both of his hands out kind of like in a Superman flying pose and death lasers coming out of his fingertips. Yeah. We watch Optimus fall down the cliff and land on the ground and he's not moving and then it cuts to the Autobots looking down like, oh my gosh, what was that? And then you hear Megatron off camera, then it cuts to him as he's saying, come on, you heard your leader, attack! And then it, he shoots again. We should say too, before we find out what exciting products and toys and candies and cereals we need to spend our parents' money on, that this episode really has tremendously good animation for season two. Mm -hmm. Like, this is one of the better animated episodes of the whole series, in my opinion. There's some gorgeous stuff, not least of which is when Megatron's using the Heart of Cybertron superpowers. It's really, really sharp looking. So, Mm -hmm. Especially key moments. It's almost like they save the key moments for, like, the really good animators. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and this this goes back to something we talked about in some past episodes, like when Soundwave's little scout goes through those Corlonium crystals mm-hmm. in a prime problem, and it's like, why did you spend all that effort to like make it swoosh around a crystal? It looks nice, but it's like did, did, like contribute to the storytelling. This one, it's like they gave yes, you're right. They they made the parts where okay, we're gonna like really do high frame rate stuff. Let's do it in the part when Megatron is looking amazing as he's <laughs> fighting all of the Autobots. <laughs> so, it, and I, I remember this as a kid. I remember really, this one stood out for a lot of reasons, as we'll get through a lot of the points. Like, we got the Perceptor story, got the Braun story happening. But, and like, the Heart of Cybertron really feels like, kind of like, here's our MacGuffin for the week. But what a MacGuffin, because it enables Megatron to look incredible as he's doing stuff. So this is one where you really, I, I, we get some feedback from listeners saying like, oh, well, you know, I don't have time to watch the episode. Make time to watch this one. Really do. This is, mm-hmm. a, this is a, like a top 10 animated episode. Yeah. Okay. So now I have my dad's wallet and he doesn't know. So <laughs> wh- what, <laughs> before he gets home, <laughs> what am I buying? <laughs> well, now since Megatron's all powered up by the heart of Cybertron, here comes a commercial for Pow Pow Power Wheels, power which wheels. are all powered up themselves. So we could get our own little cars to drive around the neighborhood in. <laughs> At two and a half miles an hour. Yeah. Want to go to the corner store? I don't know. It's getting dark. <laughs> it's only three o'clock. I know. <laughs> we won't get there till eight. <laughs> We can laugh at all the poor kids who have to pedal their bikes. As they ride past us <laughs> to get to the store. <laughs> and they get the garbage pill kids before we did now. Great. Thanks, Power Wheels. <laughs> well, speaking of power, who can forget Ravel's Power Lords? Oh, that figure creeped me out so much. <laughs> Power Lords! It's I am Lord Power, leader of the Lords! Griptog and Lagos are attacking! We must help Psyduck defend Volcan Rock! He's got thumbs on both sides! I don't know how I feel about that! <laughs> <laughs> and there's even more power to go around with this commercial for She-Ra, Princess of Power! The magic sword in one stroke, and she's got the strength of a tower. She wrote Princess of Power. The fate of the world's in the hands of one beautiful Ah, uh, that is such a good theme song. You don't hear that one get used as much as the Filmation show. <laughs> 
And she had holographic stickers on her, like, sort of face mask thing. <laughs> Any toy that has, like, holographic or, like, super reflective stickers is always a cooler toy by at least 15%. <laughs> and you can comb her hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's some, some little problematic stuff with some of these toys that were aimed at a certain demographic. And it's like, okay, well, she's Princess of Power, but she's also Princess of Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> eh, you know. But all the money's gone. I'm going to hide the wallet in the couch cushions. Dad will never know. Let's get back to the episode. Well, as we return, we get the following exchange between Ratchet and Cliffjumper. How'd he get here? <laughs> That's it. There we are. Maybe he was sleeping in Prime's trailer. <laughs> He'll blow us away if we attack. He'll blow us away if we just stand here. Charge! And suddenly a bunch of others are here, too. We have Prowl, Ironhide, Smokescreen, and Huffer all suddenly here. Okay. So I guess maybe they radioed back and said, hey, you know what? This might be tougher than we initially thought. <laughs> so, like, Autobots, how fast can you get here from Oregon or Arizona or wherever you are to, <laughs> to South, South America? South America. Well, what country in South America, Prime? Uh, South America. <laughs> Well, it'll take us about three commercials. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, here we are. (laughs) So everyone fires at Megatron, but no one hits him. But one by one, Megatron takes out nearly everyone with one blast from his hands. Prowl, Ironhide, Brawn, Ratchet, Huffer, all taken out with one shot each. This part's pretty... <laughs> One thing I'm grateful for in doing this show with you every week is that like we're getting more of a sense of each other than we've ever had before cuz like everybody Hoover put this in the notes in parentheses Jersey talks about how great the animation is on Huffer. <laughs> <laughs> like anticipate like okay he's going to grab some screen grabs here which I didn't have to cuz Hoover already watched it. Yeah, the Huffer like transforms he like leaps in the air transforms into truck mode he's like hope i get lucky like well it's unusually hopeful for you huffer (laughs) and then megatron just wipes him out but like the crash he does is so good looking all of the when he's knocking the autobots down it's just it's animated beautifully you really feel the power that megatron's playing with and you feel how helpless everybody is in this scene Mm -hmm. well smokescreen goes to revive prime who manages to come to just in time to see wind charger taken out guess he's here too (laughs) So Prime deduces that Megatron is powered by the heart of Cybertron now and thinks they're done for. He has Smokescreen to buy them some time, so he transforms, books it to Megatron, does donuts around him while unleashing his (laughs) opaque smoke, which obstructs Megatron's view completely, though Megatron still gets lucky and hits Smokescreen as he's speeding around him. Now Prime takes this opportunity to have everyone fire on Megatron at once, since just about everyone has recovered from getting shot. Then he has everyone blast the hill above them. And you guessed it, boulders rain down on the Decepticons and bury them all. And this scene looks fantastic. We look at a horizontal level shot. Like our eye is on the ground looking straight ahead at the horizon, but it's like tilted at like a, like a 15 degree angle. As you watch a bunch of Decepticons run toward the camera and boulders slowly taking them over. And we watch Soundwave doing his level best. He did some fancy acrobatics in the past. Not enough this time. And yeah, it, he gets all the way up to us by the time he gets buried. It's beautifully done. Not only just a great compositional shot, but like animated-wise, it's it's really pretty. Yeah, because he's just not running straight. He's like running 
and then he changes direction to avoid a yeah. boulder, and then yeah. he like has to z back to the yeah, direction he was going. He's doing serpentine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very well done. It's really great because I mean, you're, if you think about what they're actually animating, they're they're animating all the falling rocks and all these debris. They're not just big round boulders; they're like all sorts of different shapes, right? Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, you got him. He's coming towards the camera, so they have to like actually increase his size as he moves. But then they got the run cycle going on, where it's not just a sideways run cycle like Yogi Bear, where you just have the feet moving and the torso doesn't move. This is like really well done, like high frame rate, and you just feel the energy of the moment. Looking at this episode, I realized why I fell in love with the show so deeply because like this is like really exciting action adventure with characters that by this point we had grown to really have some affection for. And it's got really high production values in this, in this one especially. So. so Prime says that that will hold them for a bit as they get the wounded back to base. You know, in the western U.S. from <laughs> South America. <laughs> But back at the Ark, Perceptor and Sparkplug greet the freshly returned wounded Autobots. You know, the Autobots that returned all the way from South America back to the U.S.? And and we get a pan here. And I, I realized as I was doing this, like, this reminds me of those Panini sticker albums. Like Completely. when they would actually have. Like... Yeah, that's a very <laughs> good analogy there. Because, like, when I piece them together, I feel like I'm doing the same thing as when I had my Panini sticker album. It's like, oh, look at the wide shot now. Because mm-hmm. they, 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 they captured the pan and two stickers. But if you look at it, we see Bumblebee Ratchet, Gears Brawn, Cliffjumper Hoist, and Wheeljack and Optimus. We don't see Prowl. I don't see Ironhide. <laughs> what? Where'd they go? <laughs> they were probably so hurt that they're still in Prime's trailer, which is parked just outside of the Ark. I see. Because he does say, he's like, fix Wheeljack first. I need him. Mm-hmm. You know? But Braun has some words for a Perceptor here. Funny, you don't have a scratch on you. Braun, lay off Perceptor. If I hear one more word against him, you'll answer to me. Poor Optimus, always having to play dad to those loose kens of his. <laughs> and this is why in my college comic strip Prime is always fed up and ticked off it's because he should be with these guys under his command <laughs> yeah I realize now the context of that like it's been so long since we talked about those com- those comics you made in college that like I thought it was just like Hoover's just being transgressive by having this character who's very <laughs> loving be like a real a real meanie but it's like, this keeps happening, where his <laughs> troops keep acting up like this. He's like, he just literally threatened. He's like, you want a spanking, kid? You want a spanking? You're going to get a spanking. Stop it. You know? I do love it, though. I love that he's like, you know, he's like, quit being a bully. And that's, mm-hmm. it, that's what Braun's doing. Yep. I am definitely a fan of Dad Optimus. Yeah. Like, like it, especially when he can get a little bit dangerous, Dad. Right? Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Don't make me take off the beryllium belt. <laughs> in, in the 80s, he totally would have done that. Like, belt loop one is undone. <laughs> belt loop two is undone. Somebody's not in bed. Everybody, I know that sounds like monstrous by today's standards. <laughs> It's like there's a Kevin Meany joke where he's like, they should have been put in jail, my parents. <laughs> Twelve kids, one bathroom. Yeah, that's kind of it. 
Thankfully, that's not as common today as it was back then. But like back then, you would have people on TV saying like, when you hit your child, should you use your hand or a belt? And like, they, <laughs> wait, wait, when? When you hit your child? <laughs> that was a thing. But yes, yeah, so thankfully, Optimus doesn't do that. But he did basically say, you're going to have a problem with me unless you knock off being such a little jerk to everybody. <laughs> It's interesting, I don't want to like dig deep into the continuity on this and be like, why is Braun being such a jerk all of a sudden? Although, it points to, and again, I'm pointing back to that, that language he used when he said, like, oh, we don't have a big fancy vocabulary. It points to like some development with the character that we heretofore would not have encountered unless a character like Perceptor showed up. Right. Right? I mean, because so, Wheeljack's an inventor, and he can like cross over and do Perceptor-type things, but Wheeljack still leaves the base and goes and gets in the fights. We haven't seen, like, Perceptor go out and leave the base to, you know, do fighty things. And apparently it's not really his thing because he's like, I've got too much to do here. I do. Yeah, yeah. And, and why, why is that? Is, he, is it because he's afraid or is it just because he, he literally knows how to establish his boundaries and say, like, look, I know I'm needed in, to do other things, but I got this really important stuff I got to do here that you asked me to do, Dad. So, <laughs> you know, I'm saying no. We don't know for sure yet, but I just, I wish that they would have, I mean, this is, this, so far this is a great episode, don't get me wrong, but it's like the part of me who's always hoping for it to go to like A-plus territory is I wish that it's, we could have established a little bit more about like making it clear that Braun is reacting a little bit out of fear or envy or something like that. He feels threatened by Perceptor somehow, mm-hmm. right? Because right now he's just being pure bully. And the bully story, I feel like, needs to have the component where we find out that the bully has a reason for being a bully, other than, I'm strong, I get to push people around. Well, he's never done that before, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Also, this is worth looking at here. Again, I offer a jersey retraction that the arc is still pretty beat up. (laughs) There's more broken screens. They haven't fixed everything yet. I had it in my head that by mid-season two, the arc was almost like a pristine base, but... I suspect that we're going to get to season three and there's still going to be broken windows in the arc. <laughs> and why? Why? Because Optimus is, is so busy telling his people not to chew each other out all the time. <laughs> when are we going to fix the windows? As soon as Braun stops being a jerk all the time. <laughs> well, it's got to just be because those parts of the ship, they've just written off because, I mean, geez, not only do they have Ratchet and Wheeljack, but they also have Grapple and Hoist now. So yeah. they've had to have had plenty of opportunities to fix things up but if the ship is just like so embedded in the mountain and there's no way they could just like get those areas back up to speed you know like well why bother it's just gonna mess with the structural integrity if we you know try to fix these screens that we could never get back to functionality again I like how you're also kind of subtweeting the two of us in the way we approach our respective spaces. <laughs> in the sense that like my setup in my spaces, like my studio and my bedroom or like my, my office or whatever, is like always kind of like, well, it's almost there. It's uh... it's pretty okay. Right? <laughs> it's like I got I got stuff to do. It's not gonna be if anybody's seen Hoover's spaces, <laughs> meticulously thought out. Very careful. Everything's where it needs to be. And he purposefully put it there. Don't mess with it. <laughs> and so Hoover is approaching it like Megatron. He's like, Constructicons, I need a temporary base of operations. Okay, we'll whip something together. Don't you whip something together for my temporary base of operations. It's going to be a 4,000-foot Decepticon symbol carved out of rock. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the Autobots, it's like, look, is it good enough to work in? Great. Let's get going. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of screens, Teletran 1 gives Prime the bad news that even a force field won't be able to stop Megatron for long now that he has the heart of Cybertron. But that is the best chance that they have. So back in South America, all the Decepticons have managed to unearth themselves from the plethora of boulders as Hook reports that everyone is present and accounted for. And Megatron declares that Prime's only delayed the inevitable. Mm. And back at the Ark, Perceptor is repairing Power Glide and using the Shrinky Dink machine to shrink his chip down, as we saw earlier, when suddenly the lights dim. Prime enters with Bumblebee and Brawn and explains that they've diverted all power to their force field in preparation for Megatron's inevitable attack. And Perceptor isn't down with this shelter-in-place plan and proposes another. Go inside Megatron and remove the heart of Cybertron. And Brawn is livid. Are you defective? How are we gonna do that? Simple. We use my transmat reduction beam to shrink down to microscopic size. Then we crawl into Megatron and rip the blasted heart out. What do you think of his intelligence now, Brawn? I reserve judgment. You and Bumblebee go with him. So Perceptor, Brawn, and Bumblebee use the machine to shrink down to tiny size. And here is a moment. It's three seconds, right, where Perceptor's like, well, it's time to show the Decepticons that dangerous things come in small packages. And he turns on the machine to shrink them, and it cuts to this shot where you're looking up at Bumblebee, Perceptor, and Brawn as the, like, the waves fly over them to, to shrink them down. And it is just a lovely composition. The animation is great. It's just, it's such a good symbol of the high quality of this episode, visually speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. Visually, this episode is just, just, it's so much fun to watch. Well, then the three Autobots are put into a small box that Powerglide is going to fly to the Decepticons, where he'll give Megatron a little present, or rather, three little presents. <laughs> and there's a full moon as Sparkplug loads the box of three tiny Autobots into Powerglide. With Prime giving a thumbs up, Powerglide takes off with a special delivery. And now we cut back to the Decepticons, and I don't know if they're supposed to still be in South America, or whether they're just somewhere else now, but they're all standing and sitting around with everyone holding a big Energon cube. (laughs) All right, everybody, take a breath. In through the nose, (laughs) out through the mouth. Brace yourself for what we're about to witness. (laughs) The Constructicons are gone now, maybe off readying another base, perhaps. But we see Megatron, Starscream, Thundercracker, Skywarp, Soundwave, and Rumble all just hanging out in the middle of a rocky area, as Megatron says. Decepticons, a toast to the imminent destruction of the accursed Autobots! Now, if you think it's strange for Megatron to make a toast... Let me explain that they all start drinking the Energon from their cubes like it was a giant super double gulp from Seven <laughs> Eleven. But the toast metaphor is about to be more and more apt. You see, the Decepticons are literally getting drunk with power. Not figuratively, literally. Listen to Rumble and some others here. <laughs> Boy, these are good. I needed to refuel energy. Energy, energy. <laughs> this stuff's the greatest. <laughs> 
And that sound at the end was Thundercracker falling over drunk. Not even exaggerating. Don't believe me that all the Decepticons are drunk off their butts? Well, listen to this drunken rant from Megatron. Ah, those were the good old days back on Cybertron. Didn't have to sneak around in these ugliest disguises. <laughs> yep. So they're all drunk. Couple things here. A, it's amazing that they put this in here and no one nixed it. And two, B, it's extremely cute. Think about this. The Constructicons aren't here. None of the new guys are here at all. Everyone present are the old school 84 Decepticons. So it makes it seem like Megatron has specifically chosen these characters to get drunk with. <laughs> this is the found family. The Constructicons, the three new Seekers, Blitzwing, those guys are just the employees. They're not invited to this. They're not the inner circle. Sure, maybe coincidentally they're all off doing other things and it's just a coincidence that Megatron is here with essentially the original lineup, but I say it is choice and intentional and that deep down Megatron enjoys this found family of his. There are absolutely days he wants to blow them all to scrap, but not today. <laughs> Today, there's a celebration taking place, and certain people got invited to the celebration. Do I think too much about this stuff? I sure do, but I also believe it. I'm very grateful that you have a fan. This is, this is your Chip Chase and Spike making everybody feel uh, make better choices, right? This is your version <laughs> of that. Is that Megatron like, actually has affection for the tapes, and that, yeah, this is, this is like Thanksgiving with the Decepticons. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, oh, you're inviting Thruster to Ramjet? No, they're not, they're not the family. <laughs> they're like, tell Ramjet it happens at this other place and at this <laughs> other time. <laughs> and he's still talking like Jack Angel's earlier interpretation. I was like, where do they go? Me not know. <laughs> but this scene, I, I had, I had to pause and think about it. Like, how do I feel about this? Cause like, and I was a child. I loved it. I mm -hmm. loved that. Like, I knew what was going on. I was like 11 at this point. <laughs> I know what this is about. I've been with my exceedingly large Polish family around the holidays. <laughs> I know what happens. Oh, Jaji's Jaji's hitting the sauce again. <laughs> he's he's all pink and he's really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the the grown up me is like, oh, I don't know. How did this get past the censors? Well, one, it was syndicated at this point, right? Mm -hmm. But two is I'm thinking like this is actually like part of a young person's experience being around grownups. They do this stuff. I guess if I had any trepidation, it would be that somebody might say like, well, but you're showing that the characters that kids are identifying with, you know, participating in substance abuse. <laughs> but right. it is the bad guys. It's not the good guys. But it is the bad guys. Yes, it is the bad guys. And as we'll, we're about to see, this makes them less effective, right? So I feel like David Wise kind of did it right. Yeah. I can't find any flaws with this. Yeah, really. I feel like he was ready. Like, come at me. Come at me. Oh, I can't show them getting drunk? Well, these are the bad guys. And guess what? Yep. They get drunk, and then they can't fight back. So we're showing that getting drunk is bad. Huh? Huh? <laughs> huh? What else you got? But I want to also pause on the part when Rumble hiccups. It's amazing. I still stored it because, like, they do a little thing where they like, what do they? What would you call? It? They stretch his head a little yeah. bit. These weird yeah, black his head, dots like, come up. Stretches and grows almost as he hiccups. 
<laughs> it's like his his mass shifting is off, and yeah. he's only like shifting his head as he. <laughs> and he's got a little tiny energetic cube, and Skywarp's yeah. got a big energetic cube, <laughs> and Skywarp is smiling at him. It is like it's Decepticon Thanksgiving. Yep. I could see why this is such a memorable scene, you know, because I, I remember this like I remember exactly Megatron being like, oh, I didn't have to sneak around in those disguises in the good old days, you know. Oh my gosh! And and as a kid, when the next part when Power Glide shows up and Power Glide says like, looks like they over energized, I did the whole like, oh, cross my arms and wink at the camera like, I see what you're saying, I know what that means, and now I know what to say when Jaji it's all pink at at, at Christmas. <laughs> He's over-energized. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to like, hang here just for a moment. Everybody, if you haven't watched this episode, you get to watch Starscream, Thundercracker, Skywarp, Soundwave, and the tapes and Megatron drinking together. <laughs> so in comes Powerglide to this confusing scene of numerous Decepticons just literally passed out on the ground. As he sums up the situation, he deduces that they've over-energized... And he launches the box of three tiny Autobots down onto Megatron. Yeah, I don't remember if we've properly underlined this. They all black out. <laughs> <laughs> Soundwave falls down, and he doesn't get back up. <laughs> Starscream's laying on his back. <laughs> Megatron, in the middle of complaining about how he doesn't like being on Earth and wishes for the good old days in Cybertron, he falls asleep and lays on his back on the ground. <laughs> So they, they drop this little tiny thing, and it's it's really, it's like the size of like maybe like a carpet ant, you know, like to, to, if it was scaled up to Megatron's proportion, right? It's a little mm-hmm. itty-bitty thing falls in his chest. Yeah, it's just big enough for him to be able to notice visually. And this makes Megatron stir as he wonders what just landed on him. Braun opens the lid on their transport, and the three flee and run into where Megatron's shoulder meets his arm. Megatron throws the tiny box away and notices the retreating power glide. He stands and shoots at him, but the ace of the air evades the blasts. Megatron orders the Decepticons attack, but no one is in any condition to attack. We see Rumble and Starscream stand, only to fall back down, and then Laserbeak tumbles through the air and goes wing first into the ground. <laughs> and it's animated really great. Like he spins around and then like hits the ground not in a graceful way at all, right? It's like he, he hits the ground hard and is like, ooh, that's gonna that's gonna hurt in the morning, Laserbeak. <laughs> you know the employee of the year wasn't going to sit out this party. <laughs> and you know your party is lit when even the bird is drunk. Oh my gosh, yes. This this scene was also like, it's a gift to everybody who continued to love Transformers into their early 20s, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, you still like that baby stuff? Baby stuff, huh? Have I ever shown you this scene? And you put it on, like, whoa, Megatron was rad! And everybody's like, woo! But they have the red cups and they're pouring the beer over their head because like, we're like the Decepticons! It's like... it. It's like David Wise gave us this present to like, I know you guys are going to love this your whole life. And there's going to be times when other people in your life give you a kind of rough time of it. Just show them the scene. Don't show them Hoist Goes Hollywood. Don't show them, you know, the girl who loved Power Glide. Just show them this and they'll, they'll think you're cool again. <laughs> <laughs> Even the bird is drunk. <laughs> so Megatron looks around and surveys the situation and figures, well, he can probably handle it himself. So even though he's slurring his words, he takes to the air. And then we cut to inside him, where our teeny tiny Autobots are trying to find their way to the heart of Cybertron. 
Perceptor explains that they need to accomplish this task in two hours because the effects of the shrink ray will wear off then. And as they walk around inside Megatron, Braun spots something almost policing Megatron's insides. Perceptor calls them electro-sanitizers, which protect Megatron's body from impurities. And the only problem is, these Autobots are now the impurities. Ah, welcome to Inner Space with Martin Short. <laughs> yeah, and... As we close on the electro-sanitizers moving toward them, it's like this wonderful little moment of saying like, oh yeah, don't, don't forget, Fluoroderry is one of the designers of this series. Because <laughs> yeah. like, this is the most Fluoroderry looking thing you've ever seen. Like, this is like, oh, season three, everything's going to look like this. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm going to make a few remarks in some upcoming scenes about like what Megatron's innards look like. Because it ain't what you think it looks like. <laughs> it's very smooth, very roundy and spiky and very colorful it's mm-hmm. he has and this is what made me think of like like when i made that little reference like the Campbellian myth of like going to the belly of the beast like they're entering this weird dream world that is called megatron's torso right mm-hmm. but yeah the electro uh, sanitizer like it's like a a ring with three pointy three balls on the ring that have like spiky points and they're hovering over another green wire by way of a triangle of purple electricity between the three orbs on the ring and so they go up and down megatron's you know, i guess veins or whatever and just zap things yep and that's the thing we end on this weird looking fluoridary thing as we go to our next commercial break to buy more stuff <laughs> what are we going to buy well, since our focus is on things that are shrunken down, we're treated to a commercial for Micro Machines. Micro Machines. Dramatically detailed, stupendously styled, smaller than enough, this one or this one. And now with a totally terrific town, the new Micro Machines Super City 2-box playset. Mm, bonus. John Mashita, who we'll hear a lot from in another 20-odd episodes. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and here's a commercial for even tinier Cabbage Patch Kids, the Cabbage Patch Preemies. Take extra special care of them because doesn't preemie mean premature birth? Mm-hmm. And they made a toy out of that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's that's what, as a kid I didn't know what a preemie was. Like preemie just means tiny. It's like when you see that word petite. You know, it's like I don't know exactly what sure it means. It just means small, right? Preemie means small. No, it means that they were premature birth. Okay, let's make a toy out of that. <laughs> But you know, size really is just all a matter of perspective. And to the Zentradi, humans are tiny looking, as we see in this Robotech commercial. It's Bree Tie, the alien, and evil Chiron 2. They're out to capture Lisa because they're evil through and through. Robotech, to the rescue. To the rescue. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. And yeah, let's, let's all pool our resources to save Lisa Hayes, the woman who didn't need saving in Robotech because she was a capable, strong, and really awesome woman who was like one of the first fictional characters in my childhood that made me think like, oh, women women are pretty great. They don't have to be the thing that you save. <laughs> but Isn't let's do a commercial with toys. Isn't she neat? And like, like Rita's got Lisa. Yeah, well, she'll take care of it. She's Lisa, for crying <laughs> out loud. Second in command of the SDF-1. You don't need Rick and Roy to save her. But this is a <laughs> toy commercial from the 80s, so I guess we got to go back to those old stereotypes. Oy. Icky feeling. Okay, can we get back to the cartoon? Well, as we return, our trio are running from the electro-sanitizers, and they duck behind something so they can't be seen, but Braun then gets sick of hiding, 
and leaps out, deciding to deal with the electro-sanitizer permanently. As it comes to him, he rips up the first one, and he throws half the scrap at the second one, blowing it up, and then throws the second half of the scrap at the third one, blowing that one up. So they're now free of their pursuers. So Braun leads them down a path through Megatron's shoulder. And these scenes are worth looking at because I think, I really have to believe that they were doing this on purpose, is that it has like this surrealistic, almost like a Dali painting feeling of like, it, you know, future cybernetics with like melty backgrounds and everything's all swooshes mm -hmm. and blending into each other in ways that don't make sense. And it's very colorful. Like there's pinks, there's purples, there's greens, there's browns. Mm -hmm. And there's like, even like, like really like reddish fleshy colors inside of Megatron, which you wouldn't expect given his exterior. He's all angles and silver, you know, but you get inside him and he's like this colorful, like dreamscape. And again, it makes me think like they were really playing with this idea of like, the heroes are descending into this underworld of sorts. And what's the underworld? Well, it's Megatron's chest. We're in this dreamlike place. And in these kinds of stories, uh, I'm going to get all like, you know, freshman year mythology study student. But that's <laughs> what I studied in college, everybody. You, when you go into those places, you always come out different. Like you don't go into that kind of, you go into that space to be transformed. Pardon the expression. So I, I just like to think that they were actually doing this intentionally. Or maybe they were just trying to like create like a a cybernetic form of like ickiness, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because like if you were traveling around inside of a person's body, there's all sorts of liquids and fluids and bile and other things that maybe you don't want to put your feet in. So maybe they're going for that. But I'm erring on the side of like you know Campbellian hero's journey here. So as they're walking through, Perceptor's narrating what's going to happen next. And Perceptor hopes that Megatron won't be making any sudden moves as they climb up some gears. And then Megatron makes some sudden moves. What sudden move does he make, Hoover? <laughs> well, he's got to check his watch. <laughs> I guess he wants to find out, like, how how fast he's going. Like, maybe the watch has a speedometer on it. He's checking his steps. He wants to, <laughs> he wants to see how quickly he's going to get to Autobot base. Hoover is not kidding, everybody. <laughs> Megatron, it, it's it's a quarter of a second. It took it took me like seven tries to get a screen grab of it. <laughs> he literally is looking at a Casio on his wrist. <laughs> I remember as a child watching this, going like, "No, he didn't." And then I rewinded. I watched it. Yeah, he looked at a watch. Why did they do that? <laughs> Megatron is nothing if not punctual. <laughs> There's a hundred other things that could have had him do. But like, so this must have been a joke that they did just to be funny. Like, this is to make the animators laugh. Like, yeah, let's have him look at his watch. <laughs> oh my gosh. He looks <laughs> at his watch. Okay. <laughs> so this movement makes all the Autobots all fall off of the gear that they were climbing. And then Perceptor falls down about to land inside two other gears, which could have crushed him. However, Braun manages to catch him. And in addition to saving him, Braun lambasts Perceptor every chance he gets. Some hero. Next time, stay home. Bully. He's just a bully. And then we cut back to the arc where Prime is seeing on-screen tracking of Megatron. He's only 100 miles or 10 minutes away. And inside him are tiny trio deduced from the angle of Megatron that he must be flying. 
Now, in his neck, the three stumble into what Perceptor recognizes as Megatron's brain. <laughs> Bronze instinct, unsurprisingly, is to bash brain. But Perceptor and Bumblebee both stop him, because if Megatron goes brain dead mid-flight, it's not going to be very good for the Autobots. <laughs> One, they're inside his body. Two, he's at the heart of Cybertron. These big energy sources tend to be explosive. Tend to be. <laughs> And he literally says, let's bash brain. I love that moment. Uh, it closes right on, on Braun's face, and his, his, you, you could see the delight in the way they animated his face. And that is, that's an unprecedented opportunity. But there's another thing that's kind of going on here, and, and I'm going to get to it a little bit more deeply at the end, but like, there's a little bit of a weird sort of like, they're invading his body, mm-hmm. right? You know, so like, it's not just dangerous to blow up Megatron's brain. It's also like, horribly unethical (laughs) (laughs) you know you 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 really already you're on tenuous ground with what you're doing this whole plan is like like ethically kind of really shaky like let's go like sneak into a person's body without them knowing and like mess around in there well if you remember bronze quote on his tech spec is bashing decepticons brains are the rights of all (laughs) strong (laughs) autobots of all strong autobots not fancy mouth autobots <laughs> that's true i forgot about that thank you for bringing me back into the page well back at the arc wheeljack ratchet and prime are setting up this last ditch force field and wheeljack says it will only last for five minutes against megatron and speaking of him they can see him approaching now prime tells ratchet to have all available autobots ready to move so ratchet runs off to make it happen uh and this scene it's a really pretty one to look at just because it has this lovely background painting of, of like the night sky, but then you see the glow of the Autobots headquarters like reflecting on the sides of the rocks that are around the entrance. I don't feel like we get a whole lot of episodes that take place primarily at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, there's like, just been a handful, but I always enjoy it when it happens. Yeah, it's really pretty. Not only are the compositions and the designs and the drawings all really spot on in this one, the animation is gorgeous, but the background paintings are also really pretty too because as we pan away from Autobot headquarters to look at Optimus and Wheeljack and Ratchet fussing over this force field projector, you can also see off in the distance all of these pine trees and different mountain ranges. It's just lovely looking. Same with the scene when the Decepticons are drinking together. The background paintings there are also really nice. Mm Mm-hmm. This is really one to, to watch with attention and not just have on in the background. Well, Megatron lands as Autobots come burning rubber out of the base. While inside Megatron, Braun thinks disabling the brain is their only chance. But as soon as he touches one of the connective wires, these creatures emerge, which Perceptor identifies as evil brain impulses. Let's describe these creatures. <laughs> Because this goes to my hypothesis about this being a dreamlike netherworld, right? Yes, it's there just inside Megatron, but they're doing a lot to give it like this kind of weird, again, Salvador Dali, Lewis Carroll kind of personified, icky, gooey, weird thing. Like the, the cavity where Megatron's brain is, we should describe Megatron's brain. It's like this little pulsing purple orb. Right, it's like glowing purple, and it's got these really thin hair-like wires that just come straight out of it into these what look like polyps sticking mm-hmm. out of a roundy wall that is all pink and yellow and like pale pink, giving it more of like an organic look to it. And then out come these evil brain impulses, which are literally purple serpents with demon faces <laughs> covered in electricity. 
right? And it's like, okay, yeah, what does Megatron's thoughts look like? Well, that that's a pretty good personification, if you if you ask me. What do, what do Bumblebee's brain impulses look like? Ah. Uh, I don't know, but I want to design it now. Something really nice and kind. It's just your stereotypical smiley face. <laughs> yeah, it's a smiley emoji. <laughs> but, like, again, like, the, the, the fact that a brain impulse inside of a robot, you know, it's probably going to be electricity. And that they could have done that. They could have done that. But instead, they turn them into these weird, surrealistic serpent dragon monsters right <laughs> so this all just makes this whole episode in a way that i never appreciated as a child it makes it feel like this is an underworld story as well as a story about growth between characters and as you've correctly pointed out thanksgiving with the decepticons man this one's got it all mm-hmm. well back outside we get some beautiful animation of wind charger and cliff jumper getting hit by megatron's blast and it looks super well done they're all yeah. like zooming around, trying to evade getting shot, but one by one they all get picked off. It, it's the same kind of animation you find in like the opening to the Mighty Orbots cartoon, with a lot of mm. swooshing around the landscape as as characters move in and out of focus. It's really, really pretty. But inside the Decepticon leader, these evil brain impulses start emerging rapid fire out of Megatron's brain, and one even attacks Bumblebee. The others head for another destination, and Braun is able to smash the one attacking Bumblebee as Perceptor deduces that the emerging brain impulses are sending orders to the heart of Cybertron. So if they follow them, they'll be taken right to it. And instantly they manage to catch one and literally have it drag the three directly to the heart of Cybertron. And we get more great animation as Megatron attacks Warpath with his energy blasts. Yeah, yeah, and it's surprisingly a scene where we don't hear Warpath doing his uh, onomatopoeia. <laughs> yeah, he just shows up ready to fight, and it, which gives it kind of a grim feeling, right? So, mm-hmm. like when Megatron takes him out and he flips over and is just laying on his, you know, upside down with his treads just rolling, it, yeah. it feels like there's stakes here. Mm-hmm. And inside Megatron, Braun wants to just rip out the heart of Cybertron, but Perceptor warns him that one wrong move and it will blow like a bomb. Mm-hmm. and the whole planet could be affected by this blast. Instead, Perceptor identifies which connections should be severed in order for Megatron to be unable to access his power. He manages to sever two of them and thinks the third one will be the charm. However, more incoming brain impulses are getting in his way. Yeah, this this is the only part of the episode. There's two things. My two critiques of the episode are one is that we really should have understood Bronze motivations for being such a jerk. And they hinted at it, and they didn't go there. But this scene where Perceptor's like grunting as he's trying to reach for the wire and the demon brain impulses are flying past him, they didn't stage it in a way where it made it clear that he was like in that he was pinned down in any way. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a it's like a three quarter down shot. It's like a like a security camera shot. So it's very objective and you don't feel the pressure or the heat of these demons flying above Perceptor's head as he's trying to reach for that wire. And also, like, in that shot, Bumblebee and Braun are just, like, sort of standing there. And it's like, well, you needed to incapacitate them. They need to be pinned down so that it's really up to Perceptor to do Mm -hmm. this brave thing, you know? And then it's like, okay, well, yeah, Perceptor's doing a smart thing that Braun didn't understand, but now it's coming down to a physical thing, which is kind of also short-circuiting this whole story of... 
understanding that Perceptor's deep knowledge and commitment to help everybody in, in the way that he's best suited to help is what makes him a valuable member of the team. Now we're going to turn it to like a, a, just a physical thing at the end where he's got to push past brain demons to rip a cable. <laughs> so he's reaching for it. He's like, what? Less cable. And it doesn't really sell it, but then we cut back to outside where the animation is really selling it. Yeah, outside the relentless assault from Megatron shatters the Autobots force field and Megatron gloats. It's all over, Prime! Not until every Autobot program is erased, Megatron. You're finished! What? Perceptor did it! And as they built this force field, it was confusing to me because I just automatically assumed that the force field was going to cover the entire base. But (laughs) the force field is really just like covering the three Autobots standing there. Yeah, it's covering Optimus, Wheeljack, and Ratchet while all the other Autobots, they're like standing out in the front yard, right? They're not even in the base. Mm -hmm. Like they went out like 200 yards away from the front door of the Autobot base, put up a little tiny dome over themselves, and then made all of Optimus's soldiers run towards Megatron and get annihilated. Right. It's like, we're protecting the important people. You cannon fodder. You handle Megatron for us. And then, like, Gears like, can I be in the force field? No. <laughs> you heard your orders. Get yeah, out so there. It's very strange. Yeah, it is weird. But as Megatron goes to fire, he finds he can no longer do it. Inside, we see the trio run as Braun holds the heart of Cybertron. As they run, it seems to Bumblebee that the tunnel's getting smaller, but Perceptor points out to them, no, they're getting larger. They're slowly returning to normal size, so they have to find the nearest exit pronto. And back outside, Megatron is stunned into an action and Optimus takes advantage. A few blasts from his rifle send Megatron falling to the ground. And as we get a close-up view of his shoulder joint, we see the three Autobots run out and run across Megatron's chest as they grow and grow and grow. Megatron looks up in disbelief as Bumblebee turns and shrugs, saying, Uh, excuse us. I loved this this moment as a child, because it's cute, and it's Bumblebee being polite, which I always like. But also, I do like that Bumblebee at least acknowledges that this was an ethically murky thing to do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse us. Please. Sorry about that. Yeah, Perceptor and Braun, they have no moral qualms about invading another person's body. But I wasn't really cool with it, so I'm just letting you know, even though you're Megatron, you're the demon of the Decepticons and everybody's afraid of you, I didn't feel terribly comfortable about that move. So, like, that's how we read it now, but as a kid, it was just a cute moment. Also, and yeah, Bumblebee's just, he didn't get to do enough in this one, and he was being super cute there, so... <laughs> And Megatron is just seething with disgust. And he turns and he flies off. Wheeljack wants to stop him, but Perceptor explains that they have the heart of Cybertron with them, so Megatron may left to retreat. I do like the disgust in Megatron's voice there. Mm-hmm. That performance is really good because, like, that was a violation, you know? And so. Hey, we got the higher Cybertron. I'm guessing if this is following Sunbow protocol, we've only got seconds before it explodes. <laughs> Surprise, you're right. The heart is now unstable, and unless they all want to blow up, they need to discard it ASAP. And Braun throws it into the sky as Perceptor transforms to microscope, or I guess in this case, telescope mode, to track the distance that the heart of Cybertron travels. And once it's 2,000 miles away, 
Perceptor fires at it, and it explodes safely, presumably in the upper atmosphere. And this just sounds like a nightmare physics problem to me. <laughs> if Braun throws the heart of Cybertron 2,000 miles with X amount of time, how much force did he use? Oh, my mind's already glazing over at the thought of this. <laughs> physics was not my forte. So Prime compliments Perceptor on his sharpshooting, and Ratchet asks if they realize that they just saved Megatron's life. And Braun retorts, Somebody saved all our lives. Who, Braun? Ask my buddy here about it. And ask him polite, because anyone who doesn't think he's a hero is going to have to answer to me. And Braun pats Perceptor on the chest, having changed his mind about his scientist friend. The end. Mm. I think it would have been really funny if Braun was like, somebody saved all our lives. <laughs> Who, Who, Braun? Braun? Me! <laughs> Me and my muscles, my he guns. Here. His arms. Yeah, and he kisses his biceps. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we have to have Braun learn his lesson. He learns that Perceptor is a valid co worker that he needs to have around. So. Mm-hmm. so, what's your walk away on this one? Well, all in all, it is a very good episode where Braun's journey becomes more important than Megatron having the heart of Cybertron. And it has a ton in common with Traitor that way, when Cliffjumper is sure that Mirage is a traitor, and he spends the whole episode just digging into Mirage. This was just basically that all over again, so maybe it has too much in common with that. But it is a very well-balanced episode, and it doesn't treat the Decepticons like random cannon fodder, and we see them as actual beings with personalities. And the scene with Starscream versus the Python is hilarious because the other Decepticons get to laugh at him. I mean, that's all we need. Give me 30 to 60 seconds of this in every episode where the Decepticons are treated like actual living personalities. And mission accomplished with this one. And I don't think it's too much to ask for. And there's very great moments of animation. It is a very straightforward plot. Typical, oh, this very powerful thing is going to explode, so there's a ticking clock. Yeah. You know, but there's lots of characters used. There's great character development for Braun. It really checks like all the important boxes. So well done. And surprisingly, this is the same guy who wrote Day of the Machines, which <laughs> made me so angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is probably my least favorite. If I somehow had to rank all these episodes, Day of the Machines is probably my least favorite of all the episodes I've watched so far. So. Yeah, Day of the Machines is, as we explored in that episode, like the 80s action movie episode of the Transformers, where the whole point is to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger just like murder a bunch of people in a row and <laughs> have like one-liners. Isn't mayhem and physical violence fun when you don't care about the person you're hurting? <laughs> <laughs> and this one, at least, yeah, this doesn't do that at all. Like The Decepticons are treated like real people in this one. I I mean, maybe this is me coming at it from a perspective, not only just as an adult, but like from a more modern perspective in the way storytelling is done nowadays. But I feel like Braun's journey needed to be matched by Perceptor's journey. I feel like Perceptor also had to misunderstand Braun. Hmm. And and that their their understanding of each other of like that Braun feels insecure and scared because yeah, he's got a lot of muscles, but nobody respects him beyond being, you know, a heavy. Like all I'm mm-hmm. all Optimus ever does is send me to go hurt people. Well, but you seem to enjoy it so much. Well, 
I do, but every once in a while, I wish like somebody would ask me for advice. You know, I think about stuff too. Oh, I never thought about that before. You know, all I ever hear from you is that you're like a big bully. Well, there it is, right? Like like Zuko and Avatar: The Last Airbender kind of thing. Like like mm. there's more to them than just the the thing about like Zuko and Avatar: The Last Airbender is like you got this guy who's like in search of honor. That's his foul card. In search of honor, and they <laughs> explore it in three different ways in the series, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and with different uh, different approaches and objectives to achieve that you know that theme. So I just feel like yeah, Braun learned something, but as a child, I felt like it was kind of selling me a bill of goods because I knew guys like Braun when I was going to school, and they didn't come around, and so mm-hmm. you didn't equip me with what to do when they don't come around. I can show up again and again and keep doing a good job and try to be kind and try to be intelligent, but oh. I should be compassionate with these people and I should treat them like human beings too instead of just like refuting them like, yeah, well, I matter too. Smart people matter too, you know? Well, that that's only gonna get you so far, right? So I feel like if there was a scene where the two of them kind of met each other halfway and then when it's over, not only is Braun patting Perceptor on the chest, but Perceptor is saying like, yeah, you know what? Braun's, he, there's more to him than smashing through walls too. And you know how they could have shown that is if they had just incapacitated Braun and Bumblebee when Perceptor needed to rip out or dislodge the heart of Cybertron is mm-hmm. they could have had Perceptor not understand how to just rip through the wires or something. And Braun yeah. has to tell Perceptor, you know, how to be a brute and yeah, how, OK, this is one time you need to not do something surgically. You just need to use your strength. And just rip it out. So yeah. that would have been one way they could have like shared with each other and like gotten the perspective of each other. Yes, very much. Th- this episode needed that moment for me, and then I would have felt like, oh, you know, triple A plus chef's kiss three times. <laughs> but overall, it is an exceedingly strong episode mm-hmm. to represent this this wonderful kids show. Is 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 a representation to say why we loved it so much as children. You've got the imaginative sort of fantasy play of shrinking and growing. You have the stakes of Megatron's got a super weapon. You have all of the celebrating of these characters we love by watching them have some downtime, both in terms of Decepticon Thanksgiving, but then also, like you pointed out, the scene in the jungle where they're just like doing their work but taking a moment to like give each other the business. It has so much going for it. I, I, I feel like this is this would go in like if I were to put together a five episode playlist of like you want to know why we love Transformers so much? Well, this is one of those episodes. And extra bonus points because I really do think that they were trying to play on a lot of like common mythological tropes with the the whole journey into the into the underworld kind of thing with the way mm. they designed Megatron's innards. And I love that they didn't draw any attention to that. Nobody said it. They just they just showed it, you know? It's like, well, yeah, this is what you do in these kinds of stories. Again, I think that this was probably working on me the way myth is supposed to work on you, where you just receive it. You don't you don't see it when it's happening. It just like works on you. And I think this one was working on me as a child because I, like I said, this is one of the ones that I remember more clearly than most other episodes. So mm. it's a good one. It's definitely a good one, a very memorable one. Any one that you can sort of like sum up in one sentence. Oh, this is the one where they shrink down, you know. Mm-hmm. Any anything you can just encapsulate in one small sentence like that tends to be a very memorable plot. Yeah. Whereas, like we just demonstrated earlier in Attack of the Autobots, what happened in that? Well, uh, the Autobots like wreck a base or something, and it, it just wasn't very memorable. 
So, I mean, David Wise has definitely gotten better as he went. He learned mm -hmm. from his potential mistakes and just getting more and more solid. Yeah. So, yeah. David Wise, you've you've earned my respect again after <laughs> after Day of the Machines. It was it was looking pretty grim between us, but <laughs> but now you've won me back. Also, speaking of which, that's another one that I got to give this one points for is that Optimus refused to hurt a tree. So it's yep. like no, I'm no longer giving you the side eye, Optimus. <laughs> now you're the good noble leader that we all remember you as. Thank you for growing into that. Okay, so. With this wonderful episode behind us, what is next? Well, next up is Megatron's Master Plan, Part 1. So it's another oh. two-parter. And this one can be found on Tubi, Season 2, Episode 15. All right, everybody go watch it. This is an interesting one. This one has a lot of quotable moments in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to discover that not all humans are kind. We thought Dr. Archiville was the last of the baddies. <laughs> we're going to meet some other new baddies. Very exciting. Okay. Well, thank you, Hoover, for this discussion. And we record the show weekly. Drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com. And 4 million years later, you know, on Facebook and in your favorite podcatcher. Speaking of which, if you enjoy these discussions that we have every week and you haven't yet, go to wherever you listen to us and give us a five-star review. That helps more people find the show. And if you really want to be like the good old days on Cybertron, write us a review. Uh, we actually write a few words out as to like three things you like about the show. You know, one thing you like about Hoover, one thing you like about Jersey, one thing you like about the Transformers. Done. You're done in just a couple sentences. And that helps a lot more people find the show. And thanks to everybody who has been writing reviews for us. It, it means a lot to us. And speaking of reviews, we did get a message from one of our fans, Guy Jessup Braithwaite, on Facebook in the Facebook group. And mm. a couple episodes ago, we were wondering, Grapple and Hoist, are they British? You know, is that a British accent that those actors are doing? Because neither of us, I mean, at first we thought it was, but then as we've gotten older, we weren't so sure that that was what they were going for. Well, this fan of ours, he actually is British. And he says, as a British man, I can confirm that Grapple sounds like an American trying to sound British. <laughs> and he That's says, what this I caused a few raised eyebrows and giggles with my friends when G1 originally aired. So yeah. thank you for telling us that. We did not have the British perspective on that at all. So Yeah, for sure. To hear. <laughs> I yeah, I suspect it as much when we think about Sunbow cartoons and when they do like the dreadnoughts with their hello, hello, hello. Oh, come on. It's kids in the States, like we didn't know. You know, like mm -hmm. that well, it doesn't sound like me, so it's clearly it's from some <laughs> other country. You know. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's good to know. So thank you for that. All right. We'll be back next week with another discussion of Transformers. So until then, I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com. Jersey Drozd on Instagram. And I've been Hoover. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dash 
M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. <laughs>